copy of the uh, sermon notes as uh, we continue uh, our study in the uh, New Testament book of Philippians, which Paul wrote from his imprisonment in Rome. And uh, today I had hoped uh, to conclude uh, what has been an absolutely magnificent section on how believers are to think, think with the mind or attitude with Christ in chapter 2. But on further reflection, I, I don't want us to rush through this, so I think I'll take one more Sunday uh, uh, to complete this uh, section. Uh, you'll notice in your sermon notes that we've divided these verses, uh, Philippians 2, uh, 1 through 18, on the mind of Christ, into three sections. We've already covered the first two sections. The exhortation to have the mind of Christ in verses 1 through 8. And then the exaltation of the mind of Christ in verses 9 through 11. But this morning, uh, we will begin to look at expressing how we, as a corporate body of believers, are to express that mind of Christ as we relate to one another in verses 12 through 18. Now, it is very important to remember the reason Paul gave this teaching on the mind of Christ. Uh, the Philippian church, like no other New Testament church, shared Paul's zeal to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a result, a very deep affinity and affection uh, developed between Paul and this uh, wonderful church. Paul called them his partners in the furtherance of the gospel. But while Paul was in prison, an issue arose in the church which threatened to damage the credibility of the church's witness for Christ and render them powerless to stand against persecution. Paul knew if this issue was not resolved, the advance of the gospel would not only cease in Philippi, but be diminished in the whole Roman Empire because of Philippi's strategic location as a bridge between the eastern and western parts of the empire. Now, what was the issue? We've already looked at it. You tell me. What was the issue they were struggling with? I did that for the teacher. What was the issue that the Philippian church was struggling with? Okay, somebody. Disunity. Disunity, disharmony. Uh, we discover in chapter 4 there were apparently two prominent women in the church, uh, Iodia and Syntyche, uh, that we don't know what the issue was, uh, but they uh, developed a point of contention between them, and apparently the church was taking sides. Uh, there was a lot of grumbling, there was a lot of bickering, and it was marring their testimony for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul knew there is only one cure for disunity. Only one thing big enough to bring unity in the midst of diverse people, diverse opinions and preferences, diverse cultures. Only one thing can produce a love greater than our differences. And what is that one thing? The mind of Christ. Both believers, you and I, relating to one another with the same mindset, with the same attitude that Christ had toward us. Now, although we've uh, already covered the first two sections of
of the mind of Christ, I do want us to briefly review. And the reason is there's just an absolutely beauty and a power to see the flow of these verses. Uh, that, that's, you know, one of the great struggles with expositional preaching, uh, going through a book verse by verse. You can get so lost in the particulars, you want to be careful that you don't miss the, 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 the flow. I mean, this was a letter that he wrote to the church to be read in a single city. So uh, this section has a magnificent flow to it, and I don't want us to miss that. So follow your notes as we review, once again, uh, the exhortation to have the mind of Christ. And that first paragraph sort of summarizes what, uh, the, how we would define the mind of Christ as expressed by our Savior. In Philippians 2, we discover the mind of Christ, which inspired all the words and works of Christ recorded in the Gospels. Simply put, the mind of Christ did not regard equality with God to be used for His own advantage, but rather for the advantage of those He created. This attitude led Christ to empty His deity into human flesh, to become a servant in the universe in which he had been sovereign and then humbled himself by dying on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity. The mind of Christ led Jesus to treat sinful men as if they were worthy of his love and service when they were not worthy. The same mind that is in Christ is to control his followers. In relating to others. And then we looked at five very practical truths about the mind of Christ. First, the mind of Christ is sharing with others the blessings of Christ. And in verse 2, he mentions five very specific blessings that every believer has received and experienced from God. Encouragement from Christ. The consolation of His love. The fellowship of the Spirit compassion and affection. And the application is, since I have been the recipient of Christ's unconditional love and blessings, then I am obligated, I am a debtor to pass on His unconditional love and blessing to others. The second truth, the mind of Christ is thinking about others with the same attitude that Christ thought about us. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility or lowliness of mind, you're to regard others more important than yourself. The application, love is a deliberate decision to invest in the life of another person that will often run contrary to my feelings. Because often we're called upon to love in very difficult situations. The third truth, the mind of Christ is looking at others through the eyes of Christ. Verse 4, it says, do not merely look out for your own interest, but look out for the interest of others. The application, I am to establish as a believer, as the number one focus of my life, not to strategize and work for my good, but for the good of others. True joy is found in making others joyful. And then the fourth truth, the mind of Christ is embracing others with the arms of Christ. Verses 6 and 7. Who, although referring to Jesus, 
He existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God as something to grasp, hold on to for his own advantage, but he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a bondservant. And so the application, I am to reach out and accept others as Christ accepted me. Remembering Christ accepted me, He embraced me when I was unlovable and at my worst. And that's how I'm to treat others. And then the fifth very practical truth, the mind of Christ is loving others with the heart of Christ. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the application is love. God's kind of love. The love we're called upon to demonstrate and express to one another is willing to make sacrifices, to bear shame and experience pain for the benefit of one unworthy of such love. Now the second section is on the exaltation of the mind of Christ. In verses 9 through 11, as God the Father contemplated the humility of His Son as He emptied Himself, as He humbled Himself, He responded to that. He says, therefore, God has highly what? Exalted Him and given Him, Jesus, the name which is above every name, what? Lord, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall should bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we looked at this section last Sunday by asking five questions about the exaltation of Christ, and then I simply gave one-word answers just to help us grasp uh, the significance and power of what is being taught. And the first question, what was the reason for Christ's exaltation? What was the reason the Father resurrected Him and then ascended Him to the position of supreme authority in the universe? And the answer, vindication. Vindication, and very specifically, God was vindicating Jesus' claim that He was God. We saw last week that Jesus' claim to be God was rejected because people thought, well, man, if, if He really were God, because God has all power and authority, if that really were true of Jesus, well, goodness, He would have used His power to save Himself. To bring himself down from that cross. He would have destroyed the Roman Empire. And then he would have forced the world to bow in absolute submission to him. They literally could not conceive of a God who would empty himself into human flesh to become a servant to those who rebelled against him. And then die on the cross to secure salvation for those rebels. When the Father exalted Jesus to the throne, He vindicated Jesus claimed to be God and the kind of God that He was, the only true God, a God who would not use His equality with God to save Himself from the cross, but instead died on the cross to save others because at the very heart of God is sacrificial love. The second question, what is the title of Christ's exaltation? The answer, Lord. Lord. Just as in His humiliation, His incarnation, 
He was given the name Jesus. In His exaltation, He was given the name Lord. And we saw last week that in these verses, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 45 to demonstrate that Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is Jehovah, the great I Am, the eternal God to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And please understand, when it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord, this is not referring to universal salvation, but it is referring to universal confession. In other words, either you will repent and confess Him by faith to be Lord now, or you will confess Him in shame and in terror in that last day. And one of the things we really focused on last Sunday was this is a death blow to easy believism, believism that has literally infected the church in America and in the Western culture. This notion that I can receive Jesus as my Savior but refuse Him as Lord. Salvation is a gift. That gift is Jesus. But that gift that God extends is both Savior and Lord. And you can't say, oh, I'll take the Savior part with no thanks on the Lord. You either take all of them or you have none of them. Look at the uh, third question. What should be our response to Christ's exaltation? Well, that should be pretty simple to answer. Surrender. Well, if He's Lord, the only thing you can do to a Lord is surrender to Him. I submit to His authority to serve His agenda, to seek His approval. That's why I live. That's the reason that I was saved. The fourth question, what is the purpose of Christ's exaltation? The answer, glorification. All of it is to resound to the praise and glory of His grace. All of this is to put Jesus on the pedestal, to put the spotlight and focus on Him, that He would get the praise. And then the fifth question, well, what's the application to our lives related to Christ's exaltation? The answer is humility. The importance and the value of humility. Jesus said the one who tries to exalt himself will be what? Humble. But if you humble yourself, God will what? Exalt you. James says, God, what? Resist the proud, but he gives grace to the what? To the humble. Now we move into third and final section on the mind of Christ in verses 12 through 18, where the focus is on the believer expressing the mind of Christ. So let's just read these verses, and then we'll begin to look at them, and it'll take us two weeks to get through this. Verse 12. I hope you have your Bibles open. Let's read verses 12 uh, through 18. So then. Look at that so then. Some of your Bibles therefore. He's saying in light of what I just told you about the mind of Christ. Okay. Here's the application, believers. Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now more in my absence. Remember, he's in prison at the time when he writes this. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, that's a reference to the possibility of martyrdom. He says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So again, notice the very first words of verse 12. So then, my beloved, or therefore, my beloved, just as God assessed in verses 9 through 11 the humility of His Son and then responded by exalting Him, the believer is also called to meditate on the example of Christ, on the mind of Christ, and then respond in a worthy manner. And this is what these verses are all about. This is the only worthy response you can give to the mind of Christ. In verses 12 through 18, Paul in essence is saying, let me tell you how to react if the goal of Christ's likeness, of expressing the mind of Christ, is to be reached in our relationships with one another. And the fascinating thing that we're going to see in these verses is there is a beautiful, beautiful balance between the Christian's responsibility on one hand and God's empowerment on the other. There are a number of directives, uh, commands in these verses, seen in words like obey and work in verse 12. Do all things in verse 13. Be blameless and shine in verse 15. And hold fast in verse 16. But there is also God's empowerment. Seen in words like God is at work in you. Verses 13. You are God's children and you are lights in verse 15. Now listen beloved. Growing in Christ's likeness. And expressing the mind of Christ is simply working out what God has already worked in you. That's a marvelous truth that we're going to see in this verse. And, and we'll try to put that in practical terms as we walk through this. That's what Christian growth is. That's what it means to become more and more like Christ and to express the mind of Christ. It's me working out what God has already worked in me. In other words, God only commands you to do what His grace has already created you to be. God never commands you to do anything where you lack the resources. And we'll see that as we walk through this. So look first at, uh, and today we'll only really have opportunity to focus on some of the Christian's responsibilities, but keep in mind, the next two weeks we'll, we'll see this balance between Christian responsibility and God's and the first thing that we see is he says, strive. We are to strive. As believers, you realize he's, he's talking to believers. And to believers, he's saying, work out your salvation through obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He's not saying work for your salvation. Again, these are believers. They've already received salvation. He says now you're to take what you've received and you're to work that out in practical living through obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12 then. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, in the context of the book, you could actually say what Paul is saying is in light of the disunity, in light of the disharmony. He says, folks, it's about time for you to get your corporate body together and work this thing out by obedience to Christ. Now remember, remember, Paul is exhorting the church to express the mind of Christ like toward one another. For what purpose? To heal the division in the church. To restore unity and harmony. Well, what was the most outstanding mark, the most outstanding characteristic of Christ's mind, of His attitude? His uncompromising obedience to his father. When asked to love the unlovable, and I'm talking about you and me, he loved you and me by dying on the cross for our wrongs, our evil, our sin. Verse 8 says, He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient. Circle that word, obedient. To the point of what? To the point of death. Even death on a cross. The Gospels reveal that when Christ faced the cross, He experienced fear. This is all in His humanity. This is why He can understand the struggle we have with obedience, especially in this area of human relationships and expressing love to one another. Because the gospel revealed when he faced the cross, he experienced fear, depression, and overwhelming sense of isolation. The Bible tells us that the stress was so heavy, he literally could not stand up under its weight. He continually fell to the ground and he sweat drops of blood. You could call that the ultimate panic attack. Yet he cried out to his father, if it is possible, if it is possible, if there's any way possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but what? As thou wilt. Although he was struggling emotionally, he bowed the knee and he said, I surrender and I obey. I surrender, I obey. I think of Hebrews 5 8. It says, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through the things he, you know what the next word is? Suffer. A reference to his son. Well, let me ask you a question. Aren't you glad Jesus obeyed? <laughs> Think where you and I would be if he had not obeyed. If he would have taken his prerogative as God to all power and authority to have called those legions of angels to have delivered him. And he could have. He didn't take his life. He voluntarily laid down his life. He could have come off that cross. He did not come off that cross. Aren't you glad 
instead of leaving up the wall that separated us from God, Jesus tore down the wall and built a bridge to you by laying down His life for you. And like we noted earlier, at the heart of true love, and we see it with Jesus, is a deliberate decision, an act of obedience to invest in the life of another person that will often run contrary to your feelings. So right now, I want every person in this sanctuary, I want you to think about the most difficult person in your life. Who is the person causing you the most pain? Who's the greatest pain in your causing you the greatest suffering? Suffering? Is that irritant? Have you identified that person? And if there's no one like that in your life right now, don't worry. It's coming around the corner somewhere. <laughs> Listen now. God is, here's the whole heart of this passage. God is commanding you to do for that person what Christ did for you. Tear down the wall and build a bridge. The mind of Christ is the key to unity in the church. It's the key to unity in marriage, in family, in every other arena in life. And also notice, also notice, the very simple but profound truth that you and you alone are responsible to obey God. This is why Paul said, work out your own salvation. Obedience is very personal. It's between you and God. And no one can do it for you. Again, as we're going to see, God's at work in you. You can't say He hasn't given you the resources to live this life. The word I can't should never be in a believer's vocabulary. Realize whenever you say I can't, what you're actually saying, you may not realize it, you're saying I won't. And typically we're saying I won't because we're struggling bowing to God's authority or we're struggling with God's wisdom thinking we know better. Later in the book of Philippians it says I can what do all things. Through Christ who strengthens me. And also realize, and this is very, very important, obedience is the trigger that releases the power of God in your life. And even, even if your obedience, even if your attempt to build that bridge to the other person does not change the other person, they not, may not be willing to walk that bridge, I guarantee it will change and that's what God is after, Christ's likeness. Now before we move on, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And let me tell you why I put this verse here, just very briefly on, on, on obedience. I was challenged with this verse just literally two or three months after my conversion. 
by a man, by a man called David Johnson. I'll never forget this. And here's how the verse reads. It says, and for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And this is what David Johnson shared with me. He said, Andy, I want you to underline in your Bible the word received and the word accepted. And then it, and then it performs its work in you. He said the word received, parallel model, it means to welcome. Like you would invite a guest graciously into your home. The word accepted is decamon. It means that I embrace something for the purpose to put it to use, to apply it, to appropriate it. In other words, so my wife over the years has bought me numerous tools as a hint. <laughs> and there have been times I've put them in my hand, but I've never really decamined them. I, I've never really accepted them with the idea of putting them to use. That's what that word means. And then when it says it performs its work in you, it's talking about the power that's in the Word of God itself to accomplish God's work in me. So when you put all this together, this is what David Johnson told me. He said, Andy, if you will simply get in God's Word to receive it, to welcome it, to, to, to love it, to, to learn it. And then if you come at it, not to debate it, not to argue with it, but to surrender to it with an attitude that I'm going to apply this, God's Word has the power to accomplish the rest in your life. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me my basic responsibility in terms of working out my salvation is getting in this Word God's given me? Coming at it in an attitude of surrender that I'm not going to argue, debate, but I'm going to apply it, I'm going to appropriate it. And then as I do that, that word itself has the power to enable me then to do it. I said yes. Folks, that totally revolutionized my life. I don't know if there's any, you know, that's one of the most important truths anyone ever shared with me. Just set me off going. In terms of my Christian growth. And so look at this right below that. Here it is. Appreciate God's word. Then appropriate God's word. And then apply it. And then trust God to give you the grace to do the rest. So I'm to first strive to work out my salvation. My obedience to Christ. And we'll stop right here. We won't go any further than this next point. Stop all complaining and bickering. Stop all complaining and bickering. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now keep in mind, it's in the context of the mind of Christ. It's in the context of us relating to one another. It's in the context of a church that needs to be healed of division. Where unity needs to be restored. And Paul's looking at them, he said, stop the complaining. Stop the bickering. Stop the grumbling, the disputing. Now why would he command this? We'll go back to verse 3. What is behind all grumbling and all bickering? 
pride. He says, do nothing from selfishness. Do nothing out of empty conceit. But with humility of mind, right? regard others more important than yourself. See, we grumble, we complain, we bicker because we want our way and we think our way is best and we're unwilling to relent, we're unwilling to yield. We're unwilling to follow the example, the mind of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, what this is saying, if I, if I could go with the, the positive that, that this is leading us to, God says, I don't want you to grumble complain and bicker. I want you to learn to be content. I want you to learn to be content. And the mind of Christ is the only path that's going to lead you to contentment. And in the context, that means, listen now, listen now, listen, trusting that God is sovereign. Therefore, every person that He allows to come into your life, no matter how difficult, no matter how hard, no matter how painful, is God's gift to you. To give you the opportunity to learn to love as Christ loved. What is God's primary goal in your life and my life? To teach us to be like Christ. To teach us His attitude relating to others. And so every person is God's gift. I, don't re I should not resist any individual. I should, not, but I should receive and embrace even the most difficult, irritating of individuals and say, God, this is difficult. Yes, it's hard. Just like it was difficult and hard for Jesus in Gethsemane. But God, I'm going to trust your sovereign. And then this is your opportunity you're giving me to learn to be like Christ. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. Just, just to remind you how, how it works. Romans 8, 28 says what? God calls us what? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And the reason He can say that is the very next verse. Because God has predestined that we would become like Jesus. That we would be conformed to the image of His Son. And notice that verse does not say that God causes everything that happens. There's a lot that happens in this world perpetrated by the powers of darkness. That are evil acts. But God says, as a believer, I'm going to give you a guarantee. Although you live in an unjust world, although you live in an evil world, and you're going to get hurt, and you're going to get wounded, I give you a promise. I will never, never, ever, ever allow anything, any person, to hurt you, to touch you, unless I know, ultimately, I can work it for your spiritual benefit and In other words, out of love, he's put limitations on your life. He's not going to allow anything to come that you can't handle by his grace. And have the opportunity to go deeper into Christ's likeness. Matter of fact, that word predestined, it, it doesn't only mean a predetermined outcome. In other words, when you placed your faith in Jesus, he predetermined that the outcome of your faith, the end result of your faith would be what? To be made like Jesus. But that word is pro-horizon. It literally also means that God has placed a boundary around you. So here you are as a believer. God has placed 
you know, use this mic board. God's placed this boundary around me. He completely encircles it. I'm right in the middle. And God says, Andy, I'm giving you the promise. Nothing can penetrate that boundary. Nothing can penetrate that hedge. Unless I permit it. And I'm not going to permit it unless I know it can work for your good. And my greater glory. And, and many of us understand that, but we need to go a step further with that. Well, if, if that is true, then what is God after in my life? I mean, what does it mean to be like Christ? What does it mean to, to know the mind of Christ? Well, I go, for example, to 1 Corinthians 13. It says, right off the bat, God's kind of love is what? Long-suffering. And it is kind. So here I am. God's put this hedge around me. And because God is committed to make me like Jesus, which means He wants to teach me to be long-suffering, and as I suffer, to continue to be kind, because He loves me, not because He hates me, not because He despises me, not because He's after me, because he loves me, what will he allow to get through that hedge and touch my life? A person that's going to cause suffering. Where I have to bear up under that suffering. And where I not just grit my teeth and hold on for dear life, but as I suffer, I continue to be kind to the very hand that's inflicting the pain on me. He goes on and says, you know, love's not easily provoked. Well, God's primary goal is to make me like Jesus, and Jesus' kind of love is not easily provoked, not easily made angry. What do you think God's going to allow to get through? Some very irritating people that provoke me to death. And God says, I got you right where I need you. Now you have an opportunity to learn something you never could learn any other place. And that's a learn a love that's not easily provoked. A love that's not easily made angry. A love that gives up its rights, releases its rights in order not to get, but to give to others, to serve others. That's what he's after. Talks about love what? Doesn't later in the chapter, we go on. Love does not take into account wrong suffered. Love's ability to forgive. And God says, Andy, I'm going to make you like Jesus. And making you like Jesus means you need to learn to forgive as He forgave because as that brought me glory in His life, it's going to bring me glory in your life. And it will also bring you joy and joy to others just like it did with Jesus. And so He's going to allow to penetrate that hedge. A person that will hurt me, that will wrong me, that will betray me, that will devastate me. opportunity to learn to forgive as Christ. And the greater the hurt, the deeper the wound, the greater the opportunity to plunge into the depths of the mind of Christ and His love. It says love what? We talked about this not too long. Love uh, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Well, if that's what God is after, what is He going to allow to come into my life? Some unbearable people. Where I think there's no hope in this relationship. There's no hope in this situation. 
I can't endure it another second. And I look at my life and I say, failure. This relationship has failed. I'm a failure. And God says, I got you right where I need you. Because only when you get there in total brokenness are you in a position to learn a love that bears all things. A love that believes, maintains its confidence in the grace of God. Doesn't look to my willingness or ability. Doesn't look to the other person's willingness or ability. But looks to God's willingness or ability. So I'm never without hope. I can continue to endure. And I know a love that will never give up. I may never win the individual. But God can still use it to teach me a love that will never give up. A love that will never fail. So God is a sovereign God. And because He's sovereign, it's sort of hard for us to swallow people are gifts. Even the hardest of individuals are gifts. Give us an opportunity to learn to love as Christ will. As the invitation is extended, um, I think we would agree very challenging message. But keep in mind, Jesus understands, as I shared in Gethsemane. He understands every fear you have, every point of stress, every sense of isolation. He understands all your raw emotions that are telling you to run. And that can only find resolution by surrender. And as he commanded his followers to deny yourself, take up your cross, and what? Follow me. The praise of God on the other side of the cross is always what? Resurrection. Exaltation. Life. Blessing. Joy. We only rob ourselves when we run from the pain and compromise our relationship with Jesus Christ. So as the invitation is extended, you, most of you identify that one person you're struggling with, you're hurting with. Are you willing this morning to say, okay, God, I may not know exactly how, I may not know the game plan, but forgive me for my bickering, forgive me for my complaining, forgive me for my selfishness, my pride, forgive me from keeping that wall up, and so, God, I'm looking to you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to tear down that wall. And as, as, as far as it's possible to be, I'm going to build a bridge. This person may not come across it and meet me, but I'm going to reach out. Because I'm a follower of Jesus. And you're worthy of such obedience. You're worthy. And that's the type of love you gave me when I was around. When I was your enemy. So how can I not give that to others as well? And then if you're here and you do not know Jesus, man, what a great message for you to have heard. About the depths of Christ's love. That he literally emptied his deity into human flesh because of his love for you. Not only to become your servant, but then to die on the cross for your sins and rise again to offer you new life, to offer you forgiveness. For all those who put their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. So let's just respond. I'll be here to greet anyone that has a decision of any public nature, anyone that likes to public professional faith, unite with the church, be part of our church family. So you stand as the invitation is extended.